I'm John Eno, and welcome to the Reed Smith Podcast, Inclusivity Included, Powerful Personal Stories. In each episode of this podcast, our guests will share their personal stories, passions, and challenges, past and present, all with a goal of bringing people together and learning more about others. You might be surprised by what we all have in common, inclusivity included. All right. Hey, everyone. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Inclusivity Included. Uh, I'm John Eno, and uh, we're really blessed to have with us uh, our partner, A. Scott Bolden. Scott's the two-time uh, office managing partner of our Washington, D.C. office. Uh, Scott's also been uh, named one of the Minority Corporate Council Association's top rainmakers. Um, and in fact, Scott has his own Wikipedia page. Uh, but Scott, I think you're probably, probably one of the few Reed Smith partners that can claim to have his own Wikipedia page. Um, oh, so, I, uh, so you check it out. Is that you know you probably many of you have seen Scott on TV. Um, he's got a rare distinction of being a you know, political legal analyst. Uh, and appearing on both CNN and Fox News and NBC. So, you know, how you straddle that, uh, Scott, it's, it's amazing, you know, between uh, CNN Newsroom and Tucker Carlson. That's that's a, that's a real feat <laughs> to be able to, to get on both you, of those. John, you know what the answer is? I, I don't take money from either of them, so I'm a free <laughs> agent. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Well, Scott, the, uh, the, the, the podcast is, is called Inclusivity Included, Powerful Personal Stories. And what we'd like to talk about is, you know, a little bit about the history of people and, and sharing their, their, their personal stories. And through that, uh, people can learn more about each other. And, that, and through that, we hopefully will achieve more inclusion and people getting to uh, feel connected with each other or finding commonalities. So for you, um, you know, I, I've heard a bit of your story. You've done a number of, uh, of uh, you know, fireside chats and, and meetings to, mm-hmm. to all of our folks uh, here at Reed Smith. But tell us, uh, for our audience, tell us a little bit about your your background, your story, and some of the challenges you faced. Yeah, uh, so my story is uh, pretty well known at Reed Smith and uh, lots of different places on the uh, internet. Uh, but I am the most unlikely partner, let alone managing partner, of a big law firm than you will ever meet, and perhaps in the history of big law. I'm a second-generation lawyer. My father, uh, Raymond Bolden, it was, is a former uh, civil rights lawyer, criminal defense lawyer from uh, Joliet in Chicago, Illinois. Uh, I grew up watching him try cases. He was my true inspiration. Uh, the first case I watched him try was in southern Illinois, which is below the Mason-Dixon line in the late 60s, early 70s. And um, I remember being eight years old and Uh, Me and my father were the only people of color, only black people, let alone any other uh, group of people, in this courtroom. And my father was trying a case uh, defending an African-American man who had been accused of uh, raping and assaulting uh, a white woman. And uh, we stayed with, quote, relatives because there were no hotels for us to stay in. Uh, And as I said... Uh, this city we were in was below the Mason-Dixon line in the state of Illinois. Um, I would joke with my mother and father that that was the first lie they ever told me, was that these were relatives of ours that we were staying at. But my father's uh, courtroom IQ 
uh, his booming voice uh, and the command of respect from both the judge and the prosecutor uh, was just uh, life changing for me. Uh, I didn't need to have a hero for an athlete or an entertainer. Uh, my father was my hero because he only not only lived with us, but I watched him uh, work his craft, and he was dedicated to the to the noble craft of practicing law of litigation, the Socratic method, uh, direct and cross examination. Very well respected, and it really didn't matter whether he won that case or lost it. He did win. Uh, the jury acquitted this gentleman, and it was a, a tremendous victory. But but I never forgot how well my father performed in the well of the courtroom. And I knew at that moment, that's what I wanted to do. I didn't want to do anything else. Uh, if I weren't a lawyer, I'd be acting. But that wasn't academic enough for my parents. Both of them obviously were very well educated. My mom was a college professor and, and a college administrator uh, in Illinois. Uh, but, but they both were my greatest inspiration. Uh, they both uh, not only preached uh, academics and, and, and giving back to your community. Uh, my mother would often say that you're only living 50% of your life if you're just working and making money. The other 50% has got to do with giving back to the community and leaving it in a better place than you found it. And so uh, growing up in the civil rights movement, uh, we desegregated schools and uh, healthcare facilities and restaurants in, a, in and around the state of Illinois for a period. My father was the state president uh, of the NAACP. And so I had these inferences, these uh, touch points where I was very cognizant of race and racism and race resolution and civil rights and making not only the community better, but also uh, on the national front uh, with Martin Luther King and other national civil rights leaders, my father and mother were the, were the local and state lieutenants for the civil rights movement that you never really hear about. And so from the moment I watched my father try a case at eight, I wanted to be a lawyer and I was going to get my law degree as soon as possible and go back to Joliet, Illinois and practice law with my father. Uh, now, that's a long way from Reed Smith in Washington, D.C., uh, but uh, that was the goal. My father would eventually become a judge in the 12-state judicial circuit. Once I got my law degree from uh, Howard Law School and finished Morehouse College, and uh, I went to New York to be a prosecutor in the Manhattan District Attorney's Office from 87 to 91, and um, would return to Washington with my first wife because we were geographically separated based on uh, her work uh, with Bush One and housing mm -hmm. uh, department HUD. And my term, three or four years at the DA's office, my commitment was up, and that's how I got to Washington. Mm -hmm. well, what an amazing story. What an inspiration your dad was for you. And, mm -hmm. and I see that you're an inspiration for so many people, you know, not only in Reed Smith, but uh, all, around, all around the country. Uh, it's just... Uh, it's so great that, that what you said about, you know, only 50% of your work is what you do, 50% of other things are what you're giving back. And so just if all Absolutely. of us did that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, John, the other thing I want to share is growing up with a lawyer in the home and, uh, and a judge and, uh, you know, uh, truth, honesty, justice, freedom, equality. Those were real qualities my father preached. And, and though we were in a 
in a fight for civil rights against people, if you say against people who didn't look like us, he was very clear that me and my brother and sister were never uh, to hate someone else because of their race. So while many of his adversaries uh, did not look like us, we were not allowed to hate or speak negatively of uh, his counterparts or his adversaries in the civil rights movement, government, the mayor, whomever it was, uh, simply because they were white. Uh, mm-hmm. And I remember that guiding principle. And I used to think how disciplined he could be because things were said about him, things were done to him. He withstood a lot of attacks as a public figure in the civil rights movement. And uh, I thought my father was the strongest man and the most disciplined man I had ever met because he could have lashed out. Well, there was a real reason for him to have negative feelings or even to hate his adversaries. And not only did he not hate his adversaries, he was respected by his adversaries in the civil rights movement, but we weren't allowed to hate, uh, quote, the other side. My mother would say to me all the time that hate is too important of an emotion to waste it on someone that you don't like. And so that was our mm-hmm. guiding principle growing up. And um, whether we were publicly attacked or my father was or I was at school because of his civil rights work, you know, we certainly uh, were taught that being respected uh, was was more powerful than being hated or for us to hate someone else because they disagreed with our view of the world. So that, that was also important in my uh, becoming a lawyer and becoming Ray Bolden's son as a man. Ray Bolden's son, the, the man, and what your mom said about uh, never use that powerful emotion of hate on someone right. that you don't like. That, 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 Isn't that an that's awesome statement? Oh, Isn't that an awesome that. Uh, piece? Yeah. yeah. So so tell us about um, growing up. I, mean, I, I hear about your inspirations and, and all the mm-hmm. teachings and what a, what a great uh, example your, your dad and mom uh, uh, set for you. What were some of the challenges uh, you felt growing up that shaped uh, who you are now? Well, I was a lot smaller growing up mm-hmm. <laughs> than, than I am now. And so, um, you know, I was bullied looking back, but I was mm-hmm. bullied by friends, if you will. Mm-hmm. I was always the smallest in the group and they bullied me. But, you know, how do I say this? You know, there there wasn't a whole lot of angst behind it or negative energy. They just did it because it was something mm-hmm. to do. But they, you know, if I got into a problem with another group of kids, the cats that bullied me would defend me. <laughs> and so it was a really confusing uh, childhood as far as uh, social groups were concerned. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, secondly, I remember going to an all-white Catholic high school and the kids that I went to school with were from uh, not urban communities like I was in Joliet, but uh, they were from um, uh, country communities, if you will. They were from rural America. Illinois has a lot of farms and a lot of cornfields and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I remember uh, being called out of my name a lot and being called the N-word a lot. And mm-hmm. it was very frustrating for me because... You know, you go through, you know, me growing up, I went through fighting in high school every time that word was used against me to uh, reporting it, uh, to verbally sparring with those who would use that uh, racial slur with me, to blowing it off 
uh, with humor over the course of four years. But it had a tremendous impact on me. I was never uncomfortable with the race question. I just couldn't understand why everyone else around me was so uncomfortable with it and found the need to talk of race in such negative tones and to uh, engage in name calling, um, especially coming from a household where we were fighting for a better America, fighting for a better mm-hmm. community. Uh, we weren't fighting uh, just some for ourselves, but we were fighting for the American dream and the, and the right to pursue the American dream with equality. Uh, as every individual, every American. And I was really keen on that and made aware of that early on in my childhood. Uh, So I was highly motivated uh, coming out of high school uh, to go to an historical black college like Morehouse College. Mm -hmm. Um, I went there because my mother, who had a company called Educational Associates, uh, exposed African-American students and students of color to historical black colleges <clears throat> as, as part of her uh, goals and objectives for her business. And so uh, Martin Luther King went to Morehouse, uh, Maynard Jackson mm-hmm. went to Morehouse, and so many other uh, inspirational uh, leaders that happened to be African-American. And uh, I took to Morehouse like fish to water. It's the only place on earth where 2,500 young African-American men are seeking, looking, and studying uh, not only leadership, but excellence uh, on any given day in this world. And um, I now sit on the board of trustees for Morehouse College. Uh, They are an incredible institution for uh, African-American men uh, and uh, very proud to serve, but also very proud of the education and the confidence Morehouse gave me to be a leader. When I left Morehouse I knew my role was not just to get a degree, but it was to be a leader in my community and that I knew that I was well-trained and well-prepared. And it gave me a tremendous amount of confidence uh, going into Howard's Law School. I was Mm -hmm. taught by some of the most significant lawyers in D.C. and judges who happened to be African-American, William Bryant and others, and those who have gone to Howard University School of Law, you know those Saturday morning trial ad classes were laboratories for training, and just you never forgot uh, Luke Seymour uh, and others who would try, who would do the demonstrations. You know, we were supposed to be doing the demonstrations, but uh, Luke Seymour and Judge Bryan and others would get into such a competition that we never got enabled to, the students didn't get a lot of opportunity to present (laughs) because they were so into it. (laughs) We had to like pull their shirt tail or their jackets and say, "Uh, can I go now? Can I go now, Judge Brian? (laughs) Uh, Judge Brian was something you're trying to teach us here, Judge? (laughs) Yeah, really, really. really. You've done this in real life a lot. (laughs) So, uh, but that gave me a lot of confidence when I went to New York. Uh, Had no real interest in going into big law. I was going to go home and practice with the old man. And that was my mother's dream. And uh, he went to the bench. He had practiced for about 20 or 30 years and he was ready to do something else. And so I loved and respected him for it. And they let me off the hook if I, if, if I took the Illinois bar. 
And I said, mm-hmm. that's not a fair exchange. I got to take I have to gratuitously take the Illinois bar in order for my mother to free me from coming home after being in New York. And she said, that's the deal, because your father may not be on the bench forever. And if you're barred in Illinois, you can then leave whatever you're doing and come home and practice with him. Mm-hmm. And I said, wow, that's a hell, that's a hell of a deal. I said, OK, <laughs> I'll do it. <laughs> I found out I only had to take half of the Illinois bar because of my New York bar scores. Uh, and then I waved into D.C. So I thought a half a taking half the bar for, as as one of my mother's wishes wasn't so bad. <laughs> but it, but it was tough, you know, John, because uh, I had failed the New York bar the first time. I passed it the second time and I really wasn't looking to take another bar after that. I thought I was done. I was going to wave into D.C. But me and my mm-hmm. mother cut that deal and it worked out pretty well. It worked <laughs> out pretty well. <laughs> Did, did you ever just uh, to consider being a judge with with your dad? Uh, you know, being on the bench and you know, coming back to Illinois. Nah, I never did. You know, judges live very isolated lives, and if they don't live isolated lives, then you know their social circle has got to be tight. There are a lot of risk and, and peril with not carry keeping the temperament of being on the bench. Uh, you got judicial canons of ethics. I mean, mm-hmm. it's hard to socialize beyond your circle. And uh, and it's also hard to have a political or legal opinion or to speak publicly. Mm-hmm. You can certainly join boards and commissions. You can certainly mm-hmm. teach. You can certainly uh, be active in the Bar Association. But the one thing I love most about being a partner at a big law firm, or rather just being a lawyer, is my freedom to matriculate in this in this world. Uh, you know, uh, I, I can sit on boards and commissions. I can teach. I can write books. I can give my legal opinion, my political opinion. Um, I can um, I can do a podcast like this. I can <laughs> do legal and political commentary. And I'm really free with my opinions and what I believe in. Uh, if, if people want to listen or care about what I think about based on my 30 years in, in big law and my former uh, years as a prosecutor, uh, my time running for office, my time being a state part Democratic State Party chair, my time uh, being part of the wish list committee that built a, a really awesome facility in Southeast Washington to change the lives of young people through tennis and education. If they're interested in my story, uh, mm-hmm. I'm more than willing to share it. I've never lacked for a lot of confidence, uh, but I've never lacked for respecting others and respecting opposing counsel and respecting those who don't share my view of the world politically or legally. And um, uh, it, it, it makes for a good mix. That's why I can go on Fox and CNN and MSNBC because, because I treat everyone with dignity and respect and it commands dignity and respect back to me. And then uh, humor is always offsetting uh, mm-hmm. For anyone that may have negative energies towards me in the courtroom or, mm-hmm. or in the media or even in my personal social circles, um, whatever I whatever I'm passionate about and I drive my point home, I try to end it or accentuate it with some humor, some frailty that we all suffer from as lawyers or politicians or human beings, because it 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 creates a commonality that if you are the hard right conservative, you have to laugh at yourself or laugh at our profession or laugh at a political viewpoint. And I try to pepper my discussions and debates with that because in the end, we're all human beings. We're all Americans. But most importantly, we all want the best for this country. We just disagree on how to get there. 
And that's kind of been one of my touch points uh, as a partner at Reed Smith. Yeah, well, I love what you said right there in terms of just finding our commonalities and uh, that's right. And, and then using humor also just to kind of those those touch points because you know a big part of what we're trying to achieve here is that yes we want everyone to emphasize their differences we want everyone to uh, mm-hmm. be their authentic selves where people can uh, around the, the, the organization around the, the industry around the world can uh, appreciate others. But uh, the more we emphasize our differences, we also should be emphasizing our commonalities because that's what brings us brings us together. Mm-hmm. As you were saying, as you were saying that uh, you know, not being a judge, I said you know it, it makes complete sense to me because there's there's no way anyone's going to box in Scott Bolden. Right. Here's the guy with, you know, you know, have millions of followers all around, you know, the country, around the world and say, you know, he's going to say what he's going to say. So Well, you know, we had also um, as to your prior point, we got also, you know, celebrate our diversity and the stronger we are and our teams are and we are as a group and community. Our diversity is our strength. It's not a weakness. Our commonality is strong, too. But we've got to embrace diversity. You got to believe in it and inclusivity. You got to believe in it because if you don't, then that's the antithesis of, 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 of American values. It really is. We're a, we're a melting pot of immigrants and mm-hmm. our differences. And what makes this country so awesome is this experiment uh, in American values and the American dream uh, works with, with, with those differences that all of us have brought to this country, uh, from from your nationality, my nationality, mm-hmm. you know, you know, Africa and Asia and mm-hmm. and wherever you're from, we've all come together in this experiment, and it's worked for over 400 years now. It is deeply flawed. Do not get me wrong. We've, <laughs> we've gone through some challenges, but it's better than, in my opinion, whatever else is out there. And so our job is to work to make sure that we celebrate diversity and inclusion and that we become stronger because of it, not weaker. Absolutely. So, Scott, you mentioned earlier that you'd been gone to an all-white Catholic high school. You talked about when your dad was the only black person in, in the courtroom. Um, mm-hmm. from, from those situations, kind of, what, what, what were you telling yourself? What were you telling yourself and kind of can be able to succeed in those situations? Um, to pursue... And to be excellent, mm-hmm. uh, to be an extraordinary um, lawyer, uh, as my dad was, uh, to treat people with dignity and respect. But more importantly, I, I, I belong there. I've always believed whatever I've put in my life, wherever I've gone in this world, I belong there. I'm not happy to be there. You know, mm-hmm. my mother told me growing up, she said, you are going to be special. You are going to do extraordinary things, baby boy. You, your father and I are going to be nowhere near as, are not anywhere near as ambitious as you. Your brother and sister are not as ambitious as you, but, but I know you want it all. And we've prepared you to be an extraordinary human being, an extraordinary lawyer. And so wherever you go, you remember one thing, that Joliet, Illinois is not the center of the universe. And wherever you go, you better act like you belong there. Not you should never act like you're glad to be there. Mm-hmm. And that and what she was saying is that you belong. If it's an all-white community or office or, or gathering, that's okay. You belong. You're good enough to be there. 
And so you should act like it. You've been well-trained. You're as smart as anybody else. You work harder than anybody else. You are going to succeed or be twice as good as anybody else, whether you need to to succeed or not. But excellence and being an extraordinary lawyer will be your calling card. And if you honor that coupled with the God-given talent me and your father have given you, and then she would say, especially your father, you got a lot of talent from your daddy, you know, then uh, you're going to be okay. And you can be extraordinary things. Uh, that kind of upbringing and coupled with Morehouse training for leadership and Howard uh, University School of Law gave me a tremendous amount of confidence and passion in what I was going to do or what I'm even doing now that, that I believed them with, when they told me that I was training for leadership. I believe my mother and father when they said I was going to do extraordinary things. And so for me, for all of my success in big law and in the community and uh, in politics uh, and in representing clients and, and just being a 30-year, 29-year member of Reed Smith, uh, I know I'm a history maker and I'm very comfortable in that space. But in my mind, uh, I'm living the very best life that I was told I was going to live, and I'm and I am uh, I'm just doing what I was trained to do. I was doing what my mother told me I was going to do, and what my law professors and and college professors said I should do. And, I, and I'm not saying it in any cocky way. What I'm saying is I believed in the training, and I went forth afterwards to to lead and to make the communities that I've lived in and grown up in, whether it's a national platform or local platform. I'm just doing what I was told to do. I believed mm -hmm. in in those institutions. I believed in my parents. And, um, you know, like all of us, I just hope that my, 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 my mother, who's no longer here with us, and my father, who is, but is a lot older now, um, I hope they're proud of me. I hope I've made a difference in so many lives. And I'm not done yet. But in the end, making a difference and leaving it a better place and I think making your family, making your parents proud is, is that's just good stuff. It doesn't <laughs> get better than that. And making others better around you. Uh, as my grandmother would say, you're really cooking when you're doing that. <laughs> cooking with gas. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm going I'm, I'm to have my kids listen to this podcast to make sure they listen to this one right there. So, you know, no, God, I'm sure they're terrific. They'll, <laughs> they'll do it. <laughs> So you said, you know, I love. They said you're not done yet. Um, you've 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 done such amazing things already in your in your career. You have reached the pinnacle of success uh, within the profession. Uh, you know, one of the you know, highly respected leaders, not only at Reed Smith but just around. Uh, you know, you said you're a history you're history maker. I I I just love that that term as well. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. sitting here sitting here today and thinking forward, you know, what what are your goals for you know, the next 10, 20 years, where do you see you're going from here? Well, John, I hope I'm retired within 10, <laughs> 20 years. I, I, I'm not going, I'm not going to stop working and stop leading and stop making uh, our communities around us better. Uh, but I would say this, I, you know, the only thing that gives me the same rush as practicing law in the well of the courtroom is the living at the intersection of business, law, politics, and race. Um, and, and I'm trying right now, I'm, I'm trying to figure out in many different ways, how that intersection, how I can play a significant role in that intersection that, um, 
whether it's uh, by writing a book, whether it's by doing media uh, to cover race, law, and politics, again, to change the lives and to impart wisdom and to share my view of the world. Uh, I'm big on race reconciliation. I think um, I think I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm ever going to stop practicing law, but my focus and passion is going to shift in the next within the next five ten years, and that is the issue of race reconciliation. That mm-hmm. I'm terribly troubled that uh, we have generational racism. Whether you're black, brown, yellow, red, you know, you're not born with a racism gene, and yet we have generational racism. Who's teaching our kids? to be racist or to have to practice racial prejudice or to think less of someone because of the color of their skin, uh, their environment is, whether it's their families or their environment, their friends. And I really deep believe, deeply believe that we need a race reconciliation dialogue, a national dialogue on race reconciliation. We've never really um, uh, worked out and moved on and resolved between uh, black people and white people, um, the the issue of slavery. Uh, we still live with the passages or the badges of slavery, even though we've made a lot of progress. We still have the emotional scars of, of moving on without reconciliation, moving on without uh, sharing and cathartic discussions. Uh, you know, <laughs> Many of my colleagues who are African-American feel like uh, believe in reparations. Uh, many of my colleagues who uh, who don't believe in uh, reparations, but also believe that they've 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 paid their dues, that the African-American community is much better now. And how long am I going to have to pay for what my forefathers did in the 1700s and 1600s and, and Jim Crow and the civil rights movement? Uh, that's fair. That's a, those are both very different, but very fair thoughts in regard to those communities. And I think if we bring those communities together, if we have a national dialogue and be open and and available to share those thoughts, to receive them, obviously racism, race discrimination uh, certainly will be the topic of discussion, but it should not be, it should not be tolerated in a negative way, you know, at the table of these community discussions. I think until we do that, and it could be subsets of how Asian Americans were treated with internment. It mm-hmm. can be a subset of immigration and, and how our brown brothers and sisters have been treated in this country. Uh, we are a great democracy, but we are imperfect. And so that race reconciliation dialogue has got to take place uh, between our white brothers, brown brothers, black brothers, you name it, uh, because we're here. And we're stuck with each other. And until we're not going to get better until uh, we can resolve those out outlying or those underlying issues that we think are just going to go away with time and and with acceptance. They really aren't. We, we have to have that dialogue. And uh, I hope to be part of that national dialogue or the national effort to have that dialogue about race reconciliation. I, I agree. It, it won't go away with time. It's, uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's important for all of us to, uh, to step into this and to to be you know, you know, having those discussions. And that's why we. That's why we still have the the issues that we mm-hmm. have in 2020. Uh, mm-hmm. Whether it's police brutality, whether it's um, 
uh, Charlottesville, Virginia, mm-hmm. where we have white supremacists and, and Nazis marching, uh, where where uh, a, a white female was killed fighting mm-hmm. Nazis in Charlotte, Virginia, two or three years ago. Uh, are you kidding me? And so uh, those are remnants of unreconciled uh, racial tensions and race issues that through that through dialogue, I think, open, authentic. Uh, dialogue that we can get past. We don't have to agree, but at least we can appreciate the other each each side's view of the world, right? Maybe we can educate the other side, right? And maybe they're less offended and be less likely to be pitted against us or each other with that knowledge and then that intellect. And demagogues won't be able to to get uh, any 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 um, any traction with white supremacists supremacists or, or, or Nazis, um, uh, you know, uh, black-based groups who are totally driven by race and, and being aggressive and, and violent, either side through each other, uh, maybe they won't be susceptible to that if they understand and appreciate uh, what both sides are feeling. It's an experiment. It's a risk, but it's a risk worth taking because we can only get better from that dialogue because look at where we are right now. Mm-hmm. Really tough. We're in a tough place race wise, and and we got to be comfortable talking about it, and we need to be talking about it. Well, that, that's certainly a goal of this podcast to just you know start the discussions. Um, you know, I, I would love to partner with you in terms of you know continuing this national dialogue on on race relations. It's uh, mm-hmm. so yep. important. And you know, you you said that you you would living at the intersection of business, law, politics, and race where you're going from here, you know, I, I know you're going to do it. And then I uh, have uh, every confidence and just look forward to, to, to seeing uh, uh, you in that role. Um, you just, uh, you're, you're so inspirational to people. As we start to uh, wrap up, I know earlier uh, you had penned a, a letter to your younger self uh, mm-hmm. and um, you know, advice to a young uh, A. Scott Bolden, given all that, uh, how far you've come, um, what, what, what one thing stands out for you in terms of your advice to your younger self? Being fearless. Mm-hmm. Uh, big law is a tough environment for young people, whoever you are. And, uh, you know, my track to a rain, to being a rainmaker had to do with name recognition. I didn't understand how someone could call me. If I believed I was the best litigator in the firm or in the world, if no one knew my name, then how could they, how could they ever call me? And so, obviously, marketing is really important. But being fearless and charting your own course, I was roundly criticized by senior partners, not at Reed Smith, but at other law firms who happen to be African-American, about my approach of representing high-profile individuals and uh, representing them for free sometime because I knew that I was building name recognition and I knew that there would be press coverage. I wasn't trying to represent them because of the press coverage. I was representing them because I needed name recognition. And uh, that's a lot different than being press driven, your purpose driven, because I'm building my law practice. And so mm-hmm. uh, I urge young people to be fearless, to, to, to work your plan, plan your work, have the confidence, right, to, to see it through or to be flexible enough to alter it, if you will. But you got to have a plan, right? 
you've got to have mentors. If you're going to be a mentor or you're going to, you want mentorship, you've got to make your mentor mentor you. Mm -hmm. I talk to all the time who come to see me. I mentor young people, young lawyers in the office from eight to nine, two or three times a week. It drives me crazy because I, if I don't want to get in at eight or nine o'clock, I've got that appointment on my schedule. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know, it's part of giving back and sharing my story. But I tell them, you, you've got to make me mentor you. Everyone says, I want you to be my mentor. Mm -hmm. I say, make me mentor you then. Mm -hmm. It doesn't come for free. Make me mentor you. Because uh, I, I'm busy. I've got clients. I've got management duties here. I've got community uh, involvement. Uh, I'm on boards and commissions. I'm writing a book. Make me mentor you. And they say, they often say, well, how do I do that? And I tell them, I'm not going to figure it all out for you now. <laughs> Give it some thought and then we'll meet again. And you tell me how you want me, how you're going to make me mentor you. Because I'm available for mentorship, uh, but it's a two-way street. And you got to work at it and you have to make me mentor you. I love make me mentor you because I, as I've been saying for a while, and I should have maybe trademarked this uh, mentorship maybe. is a two way street, but maybe you Tra came up with it first. So I couldn't, <laughs> couldn't tra trademark that, but absolutely. You can have it, but you, we're on the same page. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that we're public with a podcast, we probably can't uh, trademark it anyways. Anyway, Scott, it's been really, uh, it's been really great having you uh, on the podcast, uh, sharing your stories, uh, talking about your, your dad and your mom and what an inspiration they were to you and everything that you've accomplished. Uh, I wish we had, you know, hours and hours of talk. And so we'll hopefully bring you back for another episode. But uh, oh, you, thank you so, thank you so much for coming out. Yeah, this has been a lot of fun, I got to tell you. And uh, forgive all the stories and sayings I'm sharing with from my dad and mom and my grandmother. But, you know, they were they were tools of uh, encouragement and inspiration for me. And I try to live by those principles as much as I can. And, and as you are an inspiration for so many people as well. So thank you. Thank you again. It's great. Thank you. It's been awesome. Inclusivity Included is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle, available on Apple Podcast, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, and ReedSmith.com. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. All rights reserved.